should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. I'm getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book. You can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Oh, and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because we were told it was only three licks to the center of this fascist lollipop. My name is Kevin, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Benedict, a Sour Patch adult. Benedict! <laughs> your favorite sour candy. Oh, good. Related. Um, Related. Very good, yeah. Look at you bringing threads together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my favorite sour candy is probably the trolley worms. You know? Oh, tro- okay. You trolley, trolley. Yeah, okay. You pronounce things wrong. But yes, you're I talking about gummy worms. Gummy you're talking worms. about gummy worms. Specifically the, the trolley sa- the sour worms, gummy though. worms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, yeah. it's not a bad pick. Okay. It's not a bad pick. Right. I What's do yours? enjoy. I do enjoy from time to time. I'm I'm about it. Especially uh, those all... are, those are a great movie snack for me. That's like that's mm. my my vibe with those. I don't like that sour at the movie theater because I'm all about the popcorn. Mm. When okay. I'm at the well, movies, you gotta have a mix though. You gotta have a mix. No, when when I am at the movie theaters, I will buy the XL bucket of popcorn of you and refill it and eat it all myself. Mm. That is all mine. Two okay. full buckets of movie theater that's popcorn. Too much slathered in butter and then i'm not allowed to eat for a month yeah that that. seems right that's how i do my life uh who needs arteries anyway close Mm. them up uh for me (laughs) i'm all about (laughs) i'm all about the sour patch watermelon oh okay yeah yeah i've seen those that's the key that's the key forget the sour patch kids by the way i do have a bag of sour patch kids sitting next to me uh because when i'm at the airport i like to splurge uh but they didn't have the sour patch watermelon when i was coming back yesterday i went to my little brother's wedding over the weekend um, and I, you know, had to, had to fly back. I'm now stuck at home for the next couple of days, quarantining, hoping I don't infect the bunch of really old lawyers who are not known for their good health that okay. I work yep. with. Yep, yep, yep. So, Over, so, overwork and age is, uh, so I got myself some Sour system. Patch Kids and, and that's, uh, that's okay. That's okay. What are those those hard ones, the hard candies that are sour? Are you talking about uh, uh, sour head, uh, the yellow, the yellow no, candy? No, no, um, no, 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 no. Airheads. No, Airheads. no, 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 no. Um, Jolly Rancher. Jolly Rancher? Oh, Jolly Rancher. Yeah, yeah. 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 I never, I was never a huge Jolly Rancher fan. I like Other a, people like I like a, a lime, a lime Jolly Rancher. That'll do, that'll do me in a pinch as well. Mm, I think Jolly Rancher is the only candy where apple. I like it's, the it's red the green, Whatever the green one is, I think it's apple. I, yeah. I usually hate whatever the red version of any candy is, you know, red Starburst. Oh, dark, you hate red Starburst? Wow. I hate cherry flavoring. You are I hate all that bullshit. in a minority there. Jolly Rancher's the only one where, for some reason, I like the red Jolly okay. Ranchers. Right. They're, they're just, they're doable for me. I have no idea why. Yeah. And Anyways, Benedict, you probably know, but uh, some people out there, some of the the listeners, they may not know what exactly it is that we do here on this program. To them, I would say, this is the show where we go deep, 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 to plumb the depths of right-wing thought by reviewing a chapter from a work of conservative nonfiction and in between taking a look at other examples of the right doing their best to make America hate again. Benedict! Do you have a hot take to start us off? Yeah, and it uh, actually spins off from what you were just saying, and it is that there is something incorrigibly wrong with people that don't like the red version of Cadmus. Ah, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> 
don't try and tip all that bullshit on here. You know I can smell it every time you're completely fucking unprepared. I you piece unprepared. of shit. W- <laughs> what? Listen, what would it, what would the show be without me being unprepared? Also, people love my creativity in the moment. Oh, it's, so. it's a it's a sign of the apocalypse mm. if you're actually prepared. That's for true. Something. Do you remember that one time when I was, and then we would like just ha- <laughs> just then had a really. I didn't know what to do. Yeah, I know I exactly. It really it really do. flustered you. So. <laughs> That happens. That happens. Yeah, okay, what's your hot take? Mine, Benedict, uh, as it turns out, weddings can mm. be okay. Uh, I said I was at my little brother's wedding over the weekend. Uh, it was it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know, despite the fact that I had to do the quick turnaround, you know, I flew out on uh, Thursday. I was mm. there Friday. Wedding on Saturday. I fly out first thing on Sunday. I'm just there for two days. Okay. Basically two days of travel on either end of that, and that that's just a nightmare. There's, there's no enjoying the travel part of it. But no. – I really, the wedding was so great, and we were in Palm Springs. It's mm, 75 degrees charming. there compared to the 10 degrees I left here in St. Louis. Uh, I'm in a great hotel. We're at a resort down there, and then the wedding was just perfect. I didn't have to do any work. Always one of my favorite parts when nobody asks me to do shit for their wedding. Amazing. Uh, the food is fantastic. Their ceremony was entirely secular, or so I thought. Uh, <laughs> I was told afterward that apparently there was like a reading of a psalm or something in there. Okay. But it was really like, it It was a metaphor for uh, cunnilingus or something, I'm pretty sure. Uh, like all psalms are. I'm pretty sure that's what all psalms are. Mm, uh, maybe. So, so it was fine. And I didn't even notice at the time that it was a reading from psalms. And then I told my little brother afterwards, and he's like, yeah, we had to sprinkle something in there just so all the relatives wouldn't get angry, basically. Uh, but it was fantastic. It was really great. The the uh, It was done by... Um, they're, uh, I guess, well, not really my brother-in-law. It's not your brother-in-law when it's married through your brother. Yeah, it's, it's still. just now his brother-in-law. No, um, I think it, it's still your brother. Well, brother-in-law. I don't think it counts. I don't know. I don't think it really counts. Uh, but he did it, and he talked a lot about tradition and symbolism and all this great stuff. And I just thought it was a fantastic wedding. And usually, nice. and maybe this is because I worked in catering in law school. I fucking hate weddings. Mm. But this, this was a fine wedding. It was a good wedding. Would you say it was uh, better than my wedding? Oh, uh, you mean the one that I had to miss? Uh-huh. Because you had it 3,000 miles away uh-huh. while I was in college? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I would say I would say probably. The wedding that you Or you mean the one to? you had back in the UK yeah. that I definitely wasn't going to be able to go to? Yeah, well, I would go with the one that was in the US, at least. <laughs> um, yeah, that was also a pretty good wedding, but you wouldn't Guilt know. Tripping. And that's, it's uh, rough. That's why I will continue to be unprepared for every single one of these shows. You know, if if I ever end up getting married, you don't have the same excuse that I had for your wedding. Oh, no. You don't have that excuse. I am am ordained, so I am doing (laughs) your wedding. If you ever get married, I am doing your wedding. How are you going to be the best man and do my wedding? That doesn't make any sense. That's true, yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Can't do both. Anyways, Benedict. What's on your bookshelf this week? Bookshelf this week. Uh, I'm on a cookbook kick again. Um, Ooh, so nice. I do actually, my, my hot take actually is the library is awesome and everyone should join the library. I don't think that's really a hot take, but we rediscovered the library yes. this week. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> you know how, how one it's rediscovers thing. things. Big yeah. building, lots of books. Exactly. Very yeah. exciting. Well, all around New York City, lots of big buildings, lots of books. Um, yes. But we didn't realize that you can uh, get cookbooks from the library, which I don't know why we didn't think of that, but it's a good idea and everyone should do that. So the book we got that we have enjoyed so far is called Coconut and Sal. 
Sambal. And it's uh, it's an Indonesian cookbook by uh, Lara Lee, I think is the, the name of the, the author. So uh, and we've been been making some uh, some good coconutty sambali flavors with those. So that's that's my bookshelf this week. Very exciting. Very exciting. What about you? For me, Benedict, another thing that can go on bookshelves and probably did back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just got a new computer. You know, if I sound any gotcha. different this week, uh, it's because the entire new setup is here. I've been replacing everything for a while. I haven't done the microphone yet. I might do a new microphone, but I've always really liked the way that my voice sounds with this microphone that I have. Uh, and it's just, it's I've had it for a long time now, and it's not had any problems, so I, I don't see any reason to screw with it. But... The computer is new. The soundboard is new. Hell, even my st- my mic stand is new. Uh, a bunch of new cables and stuff going on, uh, and uh, and I'm really excited to have it all done. the The record we did the other day, we did the the second patron only bonus episode of January, which is now available. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a little bit of a sound problem, and that was because I completely forgot when I switched over from the old computer to the new computer. I had already set up the new soundboard with the old computer. Mm. I forgot that I had to go and uh, manually install the drivers, uh, which is a little software thingy that works with with audio stuff. Uh, and I hadn't well, done that. Well so explained I, for the lay audience. Uh, yeah. Congrats. A little, bit of a, a little bit of a problem on the patron only. A little bit of weirdness there. It sounds fine, but it's just not It was as the good second patron clear. only of the month. So. Sure, sure. So, but uh, I Some, hope something was always going to go wrong. Now, We're cursed, at least. I on hope some it's level. going to be perfect. I hope it's going to be perfect. Uh, and it certainly, I think, to my ears, sounds uh, better than the old setup. And uh, and I'm really excited for that. But, anyways, new computer, dual screens, really powerful, uh, uh, graphics stuff, graphics words, um, GeForce, mm-hmm. uh, all that stuff. So that means I can play all the computer games that my old computers have never had the power to do. Great stuff. Uh, and I really love old RTS games, real-time mm-hmm. strategy, the Command and Conquer series, uh, and Age of Empires. Those are probably my favorites. Uh, and I'm recommending, of course, this week, Command and Conquer, because they just issued an updated, redone version of the original Command and Conquer game, and uh, Command, Command and Conquer Red Alert, which oh. is from, I think, like the early 90s. I don't remember when those came out originally, but I played the shit out of those when I was a kid. Okay. Uh, on a computer that was barely able to handle them. <laughs> and now I have this overpowered rig, and I'm playing games that were originally made in, like, 16-bit. Did you uh, ever play, um, what's it called, Stronghold? I love I... that game. It's like a It was like a castle-building simulator, and you had to, like, siege castles and defend castles from siege. That was one you of know, my favorite games. You know, I don't games. think I have, but I would play the yeah, shit out of that. Yeah, it's really good. I would good. play you the should. shit out of that. I play a lot of, like, strategy and simulation games like yeah. that. Not like The Sims or anything, but stuff where it's, yeah. I'm all about that. I'm no, all Str- about that. Stronghold like. is great fun. You should go play Stronghold. It's, it's set in, like, in England, and you have to, like, you're, like, the... Oh, well, you just ruined it for me. I wanted castles in America, no. Benick. The, the, you're, like, the, the warrior strategist of, like, an exiled king, and you have to slowly win back the country, and it gets harder and harder the more nice. of the country you take. And you like All right, castles. I'm going to have to check yeah. this out, because I'm, okay. I'm on a real kick. Okay. Whenever I get some spare time from work, which is, is not often, <laughs> uh, I've been playing the shit out of some cute computer games. But Command & Conquer, go check it out. I fucking love those games. I'll, I'll be playing so much of those coming up. Anyways, housekeeping here. Remember to rate and review us on the tunes and the fies, and, uh, you know... 
leave Spotify. Don't listen to us there. That'd be a great thing. Mm. I'd appreciate that. But do leave us a five-star review there. Then <laughs> on maybe Spotify. People find us on Spotify yeah. and then leave and go listen to us somewhere else. Uh, that'd be fantastic. Follow us on the social medias at NYGBCPod on Twitter. Like I mentioned, the second Patreon-only bonus episode of the month, uh, which is our final review of None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen and Larry Abraham. We are finally done with that book. And boy, did it end on a high note, didn't mm. it? <laughs> It yep. took us out. It really did. Yep, yep, yep. It took us out on a high note. It was exciting. For, but, the, for uh, those who are not patrons, first of all, what are you doing? You should be. Second of all, <laughs> we love our patrons. Third of all, uh, the, the solution that this man came to for saving the world from the New World Order conspiracy by 1976, by the way, after which he said we would be doomed. And he was, was right. It was so by said, the book we were by reading. the very book we were reading. And also <laughs> and the, the, other, hundreds of copies the, the, the other thing that we noted was that he was like, in order for this to succeed, we need 30 million people to read this book in America by 1976. And then on the cover of the copy that Kevin and I had, it says over five million copies sold worldwide so you there's a spoiler right there on the cover that this man did not achieve his goal oh god it's outstanding it's really outstanding definitely go check that out if you haven't already if you're a patron uh they'll all be up there forever for eternity for anyone who wants to become a patron and listen to all the patron only bonus episodes of course our next patron only bonus which we're going to be doing this upcoming month in february uh we're going to be starting our next review of The Conscience of a Conservative by mm. Barry Goldwater and another fascist uh, who actually ghost-wrote it for him. Was it was it Elbent Brozell? Elbent Brozell, yeah. It was, El, it was yeah, he was the one who ghost-wrote yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Uh, the, you know, fascist who started a fascist newspaper to mm-hmm. support a fascist. Great stuff, people. Really great stuff. But uh, that's it for that. Other than that, just today, we have one new patron and uh, addition to the Spooky World New World Order to add today, and that is... Guest from our last episode, Utah mm-hmm. Outcasts. Actually, Ooh. while we were doing that episode. Yeah, really paying attention. <laughs> I didn't even X. see it. <laughs> yeah. I Re- didn't even see really it because I have the, the pages show. open and I don't refresh them uh, until, you know, after I'm done with the episode. But he actually joined as a patron while we were sitting there recording with him, which was which was great. But uh, X from Utah Outcasts, although it's, it's their account, so I think it's uh, all of them now officially. They're part of our New World Spooky World Order. Welcome. Thank you all so very much. And if you would like to become a member of our New World Spooky World Order, you can, of course, tweet or post about the show on social media, recommending it to others. Send me a screenshot, tag us, something like that. Leave us a five-star review wherever you can and drop me a screenshot to let me know. Become a patron or eh, get my attention with something good and we'll induct you into the New World Spooky World Order. Blah! Anyways, Benedict, this week we are finishing our review of this god-awful, Piece of shit, waste of time, yeah, fucking book. I, uh, God is, and man, this is at another Yale, one of those Buckley. That, that seems to be. You know, we 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 read this because it was billed as a, a classic, right? Yes, um, completely wrongly, yeah, completely wrong. I, I think it, it's it. It just do, it not not only is it not good, right? That mm-hmm. f- yeah. first of all, which we 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 have seen as we go along. Well, uh, here's I would say it is not externally good. It is not even internally good. Yeah. But what, but, well, yes. But what I would say is it's interesting that this gets billed as a classic when it clearly had no impact <laughs> at, at all. Like it, it didn't even have a short term impact on the I'm way sure that. I'm sure this book didn't even make any sales until he started National Review. 
No, I, like I maybe they offered it in the back of the print version of National Review that went out way back in the day, and people signed it, finally started to read it then. But there's no way, and because because this was marketed entirely towards people he went to school with, mm-hmm. and all those people remember fucking hated well, him. Well, it was people people <laughs> who left school slightly before him. Is sure, actually sure, but I think also people he went to school with. Maybe he was probably targeting. Maybe, but. But yeah, it's it it's interesting, isn't it? It's 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 just not. I mean, it's just it made no impact, and it's such no, a it it's didn't. such a like you know like when a child is like goes up to their room after they think something unfair has happened and comes down <laughs> with like a scrawled <laughs> list of like these are my demands, like not to have to take yeah. the garbage out. These like, are all the reasons why I should be let out of timeout. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's this is literally that is what this book oh, is. Oh God. But with he was ag- a, he was exactly that slightly, child. Slightly, he was more exactly that child. Loquacious way you know okay did you over here did you get the bacon is good for me kid no okay it was i think it was like wife swap or something and it was it, oh, God. it, it was some <laughs> some woman went to this this person's oh. they, they like they swapped mothers for, and then she was like throwing all the junk food out and then this child was like how dare you how dare you do that? this child was going around going bacon is good for me <laughs> and then was, she thinks she's the queen and we're the sorry people i have to send you the clip <laughs> after it's look, we need to talk about your choices in television. We really need to talk about that sometime. I did. You know what? Who reminds me of? You know who really reminds me of William F. Buckley? Um, yesterday on the plane, there was a child who mm. went running down the aisle, screaming, uh, trying to get to one of the bathrooms, and then he tugged on the arm of the the flight attendant who was you know handing out drinks with that cart blocking the mm. aisle because he wanted to get past to go down to the bathroom, and the flight attendant said, "You can go to the one on the front of the plane." And the flight, the kid said, "But that one's just for ladies." And the flight attendant said, "No, you can go to the one on the front of the plane." And he said, "But that one's just for ladies. What do you know?" That's William F. Buckley yeah. to me. That's really William F. Buckley to me. If I have to get down to it, it's that Wild. fucking kid. Wild. And if you're wondering why we're talking about anything else today, it's because we're not don't very have much, much left in this with. chapter. Yeah, we have. We might today. actually do less than an hour for once. <laughs> We have today Chapter 5, The Problem of the Alumnus, uh, which is, uh, I mean, it's called a chapter. Are you drinking? Are you drinking on the air? No, what are you doing? Do you like my mug? It says Crazy Horse Lady. Um, <laughs> of course you do. It was an accidental <laughs> present from one of my wife's friends. <laughs> but this chapter is six pages in its entirety. Just six pages. Uh, again, the problem of the alumnus, and it begins with a long quote from a boring person who I don't care. To you know, talk whenever about. these, whenever uh, uh, there is a real problem with people opening with block quotes that are too long, because I just don't read them, and I am a person who likes reading. And if you can't get me to read your boring block co- quote, I promise you, nobody is reading your boring block quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this guy, I even took the I, look. I took the time to Google this guy, and the most interesting thing, because there are like three categories of people that we run across in these older books where someone's bringing them up. There are three categories. One, you know, shockingly racist and vile to a point where it's like, oh my God, I can't believe you would cite from this person. They're so obviously hideous. Shockingly racist and stunningly vile. Mm -hmm. Two, who gives a fuck? Nobody has ever bothered to care about this person. They don't even have an obituary in the New York Times. And everyone has an obituary in the New York Times. I don't. Well, 
We will get you there someday. Do you think I will have an obituary in the New York Times? No. No. And three (laughs) is this person is surprisingly really good. Like there, I run into those ones all the time. Oh, this dude was fucking cool. Yeah. Those are the three types. Yeah, of people Yeah, we've had I a few into. of those in here. We have, we have. This guy, the most interesting thing I could find about him was like a. He was the. Um, I think he was the uh, provost or the dean of uh, Worcester, uh, Worcester College. Uh, Howard Lowry is this guy's name, mm. and there was like an article in the student newspaper going over. This guy might have been a womanizer, and it seems like he sort of went after younger women. In their, you know, 18, 19 year olds. That's, that's it. That's all there was about this guy. Which is not great, but for 1930 something, better than a lot of people at the time. <laughs> so, I'm not, uh, I just didn't care. I just didn't care. But Buckley starts this chapter proper, quote, The academic community has no illusions about its importance. It may be that this self-recognition is in part responsible for the willingness of so many men and women to suffer the vicissitudes of an incredibly capricious and inequitable pay scale. Again, once there again, is... shut the fuck up. Like, shut I can say up. words like loquacious shut and... Shut the mel- fuck up. Ugh. Well, Benedict, you know why he put on that fake fucking accent? Because he, he thought that's all it takes to be able to say those words. Yeah. It's also fun. It's, it's, it's extremely funny to me that ever like the current right is so like anti like effeteness, right? And then mm-hmm. their yeah. fucking idol yeah, is William F. Buckley. Yeah, exactly. Jesus, it's, it's so fucking dumb. Continuing, there is some reason for the dedication of the educator. Primarily, it must stem from his devotion to his work. But in some measure, he is unquestionably fortified by the knowledge that despite the trials and penury of his existence, he is shaping more directly than the members of any other profession. The destiny of the world. Which, okay, I get that we all talk that way about educators. I, I get that we do. Yeah, but if, any, I, I if ever there were an we overstatement do. about, like, Yale <laughs> University, this is, like, oh. this is it. Oh, Benedict! Oh, Benedict, does he not then, below that, oh, he does. in the next paragraph, talk about how, well, you could actually say that Yale is the center of the entire Western world's educational yeah, system. Yeah, imagine how self-absorbed you have to be to be like, and to, look, to be fair, Yale over-indexes for people who run the world. I think we would uh-huh. all prefer yes, if it didn't. Yes. Um, that's also <laughs> true of the universities that we went to, and I think we would both also prefer that that weren't true as know, well. I don't know, man. The world would be pretty great. It would be pretty great if UC Berkeley you know, ran the world, I, I have to say. I um, I was thinking about this today and I, uh, as I read it, and I, I was also, thinking... Also, Benedict... Oxford did basically run the world at one point. Oh, yeah. Go fuck yourself. No, I say, I, I'm <laughs> saying it's bad. It is not good. Um, the uh, I, I was thinking about this in the context of this is all pre-student movements, which mm-hmm, I, yeah. I knew, but I hadn't. Oh, and he hated the student movements. Yeah, I, I hadn't clocked. So it's very funny to me that he's like, the alumnus should decide the policy of the university. And then he's like, no, not like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is really what it is, right? It's it's pretending, because uh, we've been through this without this enti- throughout this entire book. He's pretending that his point is really something procedural, but really, it's all substantive. Yeah. He just wants people to be taught that Keynesian is so- Keynesian economics is socialism, that you must believe in God uh, to be a good person or whatever the fuck, and that uh, <laughs> you know you should you should only believe this bullshit 
Austrian school economics that actually no one believes in before, during, or after this time period, even though he pretends as though it's somehow classical economics. It's just... It just says horseshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyways, he says, like we said, we're not being hyperbolic when he says that Yale is the center of the fucking universe. Because he says, quote, There is no more graphic indication of the extent of Yale's influence. And influence is italicized there, and I'm not sure why that is. But before that, he had mentioned how many presidents of other colleges are past graduates of Yale, and how many other uh, alumni of Yale are engaged in educational work. He continues. Add to Yale that small company of American, British, and European universities. In fact, add to Yale the entire complex of the Western world's educational (laughs) institutions, and you have in your grasp the nerve center of civilization. He really does think that Yale is the center of the fucking... Extremely wanky. Because when he says that no one has more influence than educators, that's all leading up to Yale. Has no... Nothing has... Nothing has any more influence than Yale, period. That's what he wants this to be, because Yale people are fucking dicks, and you can all go fuck yourself. Everyone who went to Yale, I don't give a shit. Even if you're a really nice guy. I'm sure there's some nice people. Which is the law school that we're supposed to hate? Yale. All of them. All of them. Harvard, Yale, all of them. Fuck them all. Which one did Andrew go to? Andrew Torres? He went to Harvard. He went to Harvard. That's fine. We'll hate Uh, Yale. (laughs) He's the one cool one. Andrew Torres is the one cool one. But... He says next, continuing, quote, What has happened, in effect, is that the educators of the democracies have neglected to exploit the value educability of the man. The results of laissez-faire education were starkly exposed two decades ago by a wise old man, Santa Claus. Albert J. Nock. Bennett, do you know who Albert Nock is? Are you, are you know that I don't know who Albert Nock is. Noted fascist <laughs> Albert J. Nock. If you'd ask this me to is... guess. <laughs> Albert Nock was, uh, and he's actually on, you know, I keep a, a list in my phone of did you see, topics sorry, for interstitial b- episodes. Before you go, stuff. did you see the Thomas Massey thing today? I saw he was being joked about, but I haven't been on Twitter all day. I've he been, uh, he, so he did that thing that everyone says is a Voltaire quote, but is actually a white oh, supremacist God. quote. <laughs> What a fucking asshole. What a fucking asshole. God, that guy's a dick. He's the he's the John Birch Society's favorite for a fucking reason. I mean, he's yep. the only one willing to speak to them, and you don't need facts when you're when you're on that side of the political spectrum. Albert J. Nock was what uh many people describe as a bullshit artist. That would be me, by the way. Uh he's one of those sort of, you know, fake uh economists like the uh the ones we've talked about before, the Austrian school. Mm. He was a Georgist though. And a Georgist is a member of the single tax movement. Um, And mainly they're they're a bunch of tax protesters and Mm. people who complain about the government taking my money and all that sort of stuff. Um, But he tried to pretend to be an economist like so many uh, libertarian weirdos do. He called himself one and, you know, that's bullshit. But who really gives a shit? Uh, And then, of course, he didn't quite like democracy mm, as or much the as Jews. you might need to. Okay, yeah, or cool. or the Jews. Those Good were stuff. two things he was not particularly a fan of, as far back as the 1930s. So remember, this book was written in 1950, and this was known about him at the time, particularly given that in uh, uh, a book he published in 1935, before World War II, mm, not uh, great. He wrote, "Quote, Journal of Forgotten Days." That is the name of this book, by the way. 20 September. The Jewish holiday Yom Kippur yesterday closed New York up as tight as a white oak knot. One would say there was not a hundred dollars worth of business done in all the town. It sets one mo- one's mind back on Hitler's policy. 
The question is not one what one thinks of it as an American, but what one would think of it if one were a German. Mm. In Germany, where the cultural control of where the control of cultural agencies is so largely in the hands of Jews, the press, drama, music, education, etc., and where there is or was a superb native culture essentially antithetical. Is one's own culture worth fighting for? I think so. I think I would fight for it. That is plain out pro Nazi propaganda. Yes. Yes. That's you know, what that is. I would rate that not great. Oof. Yes. I would. That and is then, a, a uh, big woof for me. Yeah, that's not the only. I mean, he, there's another quote uh, where he, he called uh, public libraries infested with Jews, Turks, infidels, and heretics. It's like he didn't just listen to my. The hot take about libraries no, being great. No, it's like he didn't. It's <laughs> like he didn't. Come on. He also wrote another book called Memoirs of a Superfluous Man, which I have to say is accurate because he is superfluous and not in the sense of, of ornate, uh, in the sense of being completely unnecessary. That You know, uh, that brings me to one of my favorite insults in the world, uh-huh. which is to just call somebody a waste of space. Yes. Like you would be, yes. you would... I that, like waste of skin. Waste of skin. Yeah, waste one. of space is good to me because like it would be better... If this room were just more empty, like that would serve me better if there were just more space in this room caused by God, you not being it. The amount of time I've heard insult. you say that to waiters, it is just upsetting. <laughs> but uh, yes, in this book, Memoirs of a Superfluous Man, he was very, very critical of democracy. Democracy, not a fan. So 1935, uh, praising Hitler for his hatred of the Jews. Uh, that book, I believe, came out in 1933. Mm. Not a big fan of democracy. Or that no, was 1943, actually. Holy shit, that was after the war. Oof, not a great thing. Um, but this guy's a fucking Nazi. Yeah, uh, he's praising a fucking Nazi. That's what's going I, on. I would here. like to. Uh, I would like to also tell you my other favorite insult while we're at mm-hmm. it, uh, it's, yep. which is wet lettuce. <laughs> Just a very British insult. Is that like a limp noodle? Yeah, like a a wet lettuce. Like a bit like, oh, nobody really wants that. You don't want wet lettuce. Like, you want dry, crisp lettuce. You don't want, like, damp lettuce. No. (laughs) But anyway, here's this point from Albert J. Nock that Bucks thinks is so great that he has to print it out in this book, citing the fascist who he loves. Mm -hmm. Which is, quote... As a wise old man. Yeah. Nature takes her own time, sometimes a long time, about exacting her penalty. But exact it, and the end she always does, and to the last penny. It would appear, then, that a society which takes no account of the educable person, makes no place for him, does nothing with him, is taking a considerable risk. So considerable that in the whole course of human experience, as far as our records go, no society ever yet has taken it without coming to great disaster. I... what? <laughs> give, give me one second here. Give me one. Mm, I was hoping it was from one of his fascist books. I didn't look in the back and see what that was from until just now. Uh, it was not from uh, one of his, because he does have some footnotes here. It was not from one of his fascist books. Uh, well, I mean, it was, but, you know, not one of the <laughs> As more, a fascist writer. Not yeah. one of the two I have cited previously. It's from one called The Theory of Education in the United States. That's where that book comes from. Mm. And uh, who gives a shit? I don't. I mean, it, I sure what, what uh, honestly stunningly loquacious quote like (laughs) that says so little yeah okay you gotta give educated people something to do or bad stuff will happen good okay cool cool or also give everyone something to do or bad stuff will happen like well we know that buckley's a fucking elitist he doesn't care about the people who don't have a yale education doesn't Mm -hmm. care about them at all no but he continues 
Quote, I have attempted to establish a number of points specifically related okay. to Yale. This bit was wild. This yes. bit is, yes, it is. doesn't even, it's a list of seven things that aren't that even in the correct order. <laughs> like, it, th- this, like, Buckley would not pass the LSAT is all I'm no, going to say. No, This is what he thinks he's done in this book. And I'll just read it. He says, um, uh, let's see. Probably applicable to hundreds of schools like her and to expose, as I understand them, several of the assumptions that underlie laissez-faire education. I have said, colon, one. And he has them in a numbered list, which is nice. One, the responsibility to govern Yale falls ultimately on the shoulders of her alumni. That is not he's true not, by any reasonable no. measure of what he's laid and, out in well, this book. Well, and he's either. gone flip-flopping back and forth between, you know, like the parents of students who are able to, you know, figure out what they're... And he even does that again a little later on here when he talks about how parents have the ability to oversee what their children uh-huh. are learning. Uh, but he's gone back and forth between them and the alumni. And it's basically just boils down to, for him... I'm an alumni, so I feel like I should be able to complain. That's what he feels like, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but he, I mean, he's saying that alumni have the ability to run the school, and they, Frank, they just don't. That they is, don't. I mean, is not they just true. Don't. No, you can stop giving money, which I think is the point that he really means, but that's all he means. But that's not the responsibility the to govern. We can doing what we want by that's, not giving them money anymore. Yeah, that's not the responsibility to govern. Okay, well, number two, Yale already subscribes to a value orthodoxy. Okay, true, he did say that. That's fine. He said it. Sure. Did he prove it, or did he just prove that one dean said some stuff? Well, to be fair, he only said... I, I think ha- he, he just said that one dean said some stuff. Sure, that's fine. <laughs> but he also, he said that before this numbers list, he didn't say, I have proven. He said, I have said, which is technically correct. Okay. Number three, at any given time, a responsible individual must embrace those values he considers to be truth, or else those values he deems closest to truth. Okay, that's a weird way of saying I can promote my bullshit even though we all admit that I can't actually prove it's true. Yep. <laughs> Which we went through in a previous chapter mm-hmm. when he was basically making that argument. Number four, truth will not of itself dispel error. Therefore, truth must be championed and promulgated on every level and at every opportunity. Yeah. Okay, now we're on the we're on the snowball of bullshit. We see where he's going sure, here. Sure, but also, like, truth will not of itself dispel error. Therefore, truth must be championed. Like, what? That doesn't... I, you say that like you're asking me to explain. No, but or, like, how, I don't know. How, how does championing truth help if truth in, in and of itself doesn't convince people? Like, how are you supposed know, to champion man. truth to the point that people believe it if people are already unwilling to believe the truth? I think this goes back to what he said before, which is that the, the marketplace of ideas doesn't really work. Which is which correct. Which I think we agree with Hong yeah. on in general. That's right. Yeah. But again, yeah. You know I who, guess would, he's just who saying would agree? It has to be the marketplace of dear ideas, but you have to be more... For- no, he doesn't believe in the marketplace of ideas. Did somebody he say ideas? He just thinks that you have to... You can talk about bad ideas, but you have to be attacking the ideas that he deems are bad. Mm-hmm. That's what he came down on, I think, in the end. Number five, a value orthodoxy in an educational institution need not lead to inflexibility in the face of new experience, which is in scare quotes, of course. And that's just his way of, you know, wishwashing away all the people who say you, you shouldn't uh, teach bullshit and tell everyone that's the only bullshit and that. They can't believe anything else because then they'll never believe anything else in the face of new opportunities and, and new information, which, as we found out throughout the preceding 80 years after this, has been the goddamn reality because you end up with fucking Madison Cawthorns. Mm-hmm. 
Number six, a value orthodoxy in an educational institution need not... Oh, I, did I just read that again? Nope, I just realized it's basically the same as the previous same one. Same thing, yeah. A value orthodoxy in an educational institution need not in any circumstances induce credulity in the student, nor deny the value of skepticism as a first step to conviction. No, that's pretty much basically what you have to have. And that's why fucking the modern conservative movement are walking mindless drones, because they have to put skepticism aside. I would never have been, because uh, I was always a skeptical person. I think that's one thing that eventually led me to leave being a conservative right-wing shitbag, mm-hmm. was my skepticism and my willingness to investigate what I myself believed. You have to set that aside in order to be a right-wing ideologue like they want, like William F. Buckley wants yep. from these teachers and from these students. That's all it is. Number seven, last one, freedom is in no way violated by an educational overseer's insistent that the teacher he employs hold a given set of values. That's just a false statement. That's all that is. That's his list. That's what he thinks he has proven throughout this book. And I gotta say, that's pretty fucking sad. Yeah. It's really sad that he actually He, he doesn't even say that. he's proven it. He just, th- he just says, that this is my argument as I've laid it out. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. But what he continues. <laughs> yeah, that's what I he says. Know. Next thing he says that I gave a shit about, and by the way, I'm just, I'm so fucking done with this book, by the mm-hmm. way. We, there's something coming that's fun uh, after we're done with this little chapter here, but well, let's I just, just get got through so it, bored. Let's just get through <laughs> A couple of pages. He says, quote, that is my point. Preliminary to endowing such future leaders of this country, we have some obligation to speculate, which, why is that italicized? Mm-hmm. Just that. We have some obligation to speculate. That part, or no, actually the rest is, as to the direction in which they will lead us. But why is that italicized? It's a great question. That doesn't, that doesn't need extra emphasis. I don't fucking get it. He's, a, he's really then, italicized a lot in this, in this little subsection. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's racing to have more italics with the people who wrote None Dare Call a Conspiracy. He's really, he's really competing with yeah. them to see who can have more superfluous. <laughs> it's like I've already italics. done too, too many scare quotes in this in this subsection. I have to start. Yeah, you got to mix it up a little bit. Yeah. You got to shake it up. But then he has another one of these giant block quotes, uh, or not block quotes, these uh, footnotes at the bottom of the page, or uh, uh, whatever they're called. And why am I blanking on what that's called? It's a footnote. Yeah, footnote, not an endnote. Yeah, it's I'm a footnote. Different between footnotes that's what and that endnotes. Is. And this is a story about how someone wrote something stupid in a newspaper that he was reading or uh, Holiday, which I don't know, it's probably a magazine. Uh, And this is a story from someone who went to Vassar, who is talking about how they changed their mentality when they were in school at Vassar College. (laughs) And uh, they went there, they were nothing like that they are now. They were just conservatives like their parents. By the time they graduated. You lost it a little... You had a they good, you had a pretty good buckler going on for a second there, but you lost it. You went a little too nasal. You really, I think, I think that the the standard uh, East Coast dick accent is in most places where it's satirical, it's it's modeled off of Buckley. Yeah, I think. So. I really think that the most places who are doing that, like if you ever seen Animal House the movie, there's a bunch of people who they're trying to make sound like dicks like that, and they're doing that. That's the accent that they're doing. Uh, but it it's just a Buckley. But then. He says of what was written in that article, quote, Typically, the author of this article, while extensively describing and analyzing Vassar education and young alumni attitudes, never inquires whether mother and daddy, who's, God, fuck you if you use that in a sentence, mother and daddy, it it won't be worse if it was mummy and daddy, Mm. whose support keeps the college operating, approve of the trend from the conservative to the liberal. 
from God and man to nature and the state. Which, okay, so we've already established that it's the alumni who have the ability to decide. What no, it's change. their parents. It's mommy and daddy. Okay, but what if the alumni believe that there should be a change and it should be different than what they're taught at home? By What if they are at home, liberal, and the alumni decide that their school should be teaching people to be conservative Buckleyite dicks? What if that's the case? Then surely that must be correct because that's what he said throughout this book. Because fuck him. Man, fuck him sideways. I, Just no. fuck him. <laughs> that's all it was. Then, Benedict, we get another fantastic quote. And this, this is from another person who's uh, very relevant. The chair of the Yale Alumni Fund, Mr. George Herbert Walker Jr., mm. gave the administration of Yale a stern warning at Alumni Day in February 1951 in the presence of over a thousand graduates. Whether his message impressed an administration grown confident of the malleability of the alumni remains to be seen. Mr. Walker said, this is a quote from Walker, I believe Yale alumni are looking for and will respond wholeheartedly to a re-emphasis of the spiritual and moral values that 250 years ago led to the founding of this university. Or or he's just wrong. Or he just doesn't. <laughs> Probably. Or they, they aren't looking for that. And this is the thing. This is the thing that stuck out to me. Okay, you just pulled some dick who gave enough money to the university that they let him give a speech. Mm -hmm. You pulled his words and you said, this must be right. That is so, we see that so fucking often. It's an argument from authority, but it's also an argument from shitty authority. Because yep. it's just dude who said blank without any basis to underlie that opinion or that mm -hmm. thought. That's all it is. Also, Benedict, Mr. George Herbert Walker Jr. is George H.W. Bush's uncle. <laughs> so, oh, fun. <laughs> okay, yeah, cool, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, he was a rich boy. He was born with money. He never had to work a day in his life. Just that's, it, it always, it, it so often is that, right? Buckley, he's very much that. He was incredibly wealthy from birth. He didn't have to do a fucking thing if he didn't want to. Uh, this guy, George Herbert, I mean, anyone who went to Yale, especially back in those days, I have to assume the vast majority of them came from money. Because that's how you get into Yale. But then, Benedict, he ends this chapter, and in some ways, the book, by saying, quote, I do not intend to hazard what I believe to be the validity of my case by proposing a specific formula for Yale and for similar universities to follow. Bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah, that's what he's exactly done this entire what you're doing. book. Yeah, this is, he's like, well, you don't have to listen to me. Yeah, like, all right, dude, come on. Fuck off. But then, he says, in closing, this is the final paragraph. I'm going to read it. I shall not say, then, what specific professors should be ditch discharged, mm. but I will say some ought to be discharged. Bullshit. He has named multiple professors. Yeah. He has complained explicitly. Extensively. And for extensively about. It is very clear who he wants to have fired. I shall not indicate what I consider to be the dividing line that separates the collectivist from the individualist, but I will say that such a dividing line ought Think thoughtfully and flexibly. This is the drawn. original bullshit. It's the original. I'm just asking questions, or like many yeah. many people are saying, bullshit. His dividing line is Keynesian economics. Yep. It is the willingness to accept that government spending can happen. Mm -hmm. That's his line. He's made it clear. I will not suggest the manner in which the alumni ought to be consulted and polled on the issue, but I will say that they ought to be, and soon, and that the whole structure of Yale's relationship to her alumni, as has been previously indicated, ought to be re-examined. No! He made very clear in that one chapter he wants the alumni fucking magazine and the newspaper which he was in charge of to be putting out all sorts of information to the alumni. He has made that clear. 
Fuck off! Yeah. You piece of shit! Well, it's either, like, he doesn't understand the argument that he's made in his own thing, or, yeah, it's very Mm. confusing. Then he finishes with the final sentence, or two sentences, which is, quote, Far wiser and more experienced men can train their minds to such problems. I should be satisfied if they feel impelled to do so, and I should be confident that the job would be well done. And Benedict, as you noted earlier, this book accomplished fucking nothing. Nothing. So I am so glad to know that his final wish there at the end of the book, well, there are far wiser and more experienced men than him, but nobody, nobody gave a fuck about what he wrote in this book. Nobody gave half a shit. Except people, dweebs at universities now. People who were as big of dicks as him. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. But Benedict, that leaves us with the appendices, because goddamn it, we couldn't be done. It's really only one appendix, isn't it, that we're going to go over. We have to skim. We have to skim. Because he has appendices. The first one, Appendix A, is religion and sociology. And all it is is basically these last couple of appendices. He's taken uh, things he's sort of talked about already or glossed over. And remember, I think I remember from the chapter we did where he was talking about the different subjects, Mm -hmm. he basically just said, sociology, that's not really relevant. And it looks like to me he had written this portion for the book, and then and someone then told like, him, eh, "Cut it!" And then he couldn't bring himself to just, kill his darling. Yes, that's exactly yeah. what it looks like, doesn't it? Yeah, it even reads like it. it I, you really know what? I like I do that too when I'm writing, yeah. but I then don't put it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the better choice. But he says, "I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read a few uh, choice selections that I made from this this pile of bullshit." Where he says, for example, quote. I make no claim whatever to profound knowledge or insight into the bearing of religion Sorry, on, on the social sciences. <laughs> Full stop. I make no claim whatever to profound knowledge or insight. Followed period. by multiple pages no. where he's doing just that. Yeah. God. Nor should these passages imply a blind reliance on authority. I hope simply to relay some scholarly observations on the alleged irreconcilability of social science and religion, and on textbook treatment of religion. Following that, he says, quote, As a subject of study, sociology began to flourish contemporaneously with Darwinism. Fuck, I know where he's going now. Great. I know where he's going now. And that was when I went, oh, God, why did I promise we would do these appendices? Why did I do that? We don't have to. We can lie. It's our show. (laughs) Ben, if you know how hard it is to edit out multiple minutes of this program, I have to highlight... Hit control delete. It's a whole. We we it's our thing. We can I don't do know whatever if we, can we want. We can. It's our show. I can just be like, no, I'm not talking to you. I can go on talking strike. <laughs> well, luckily, Benedict, as anyone who has ever looked at the waveform of our two recordings can tell you, it doesn't quite matter if you decide to get. You're being silent now, aren't you? You're giving me the silent treatment. I see you. I see what you're doing there. Oh, Benedict. Oh, but come back. No, he's. God, he's leaving. He's no Benedict. Stop. Stop. Oh God. Oh God. He's got gasoline. Benedict. No. What are you? What are you? No. Do not splash okay, that on the. Okay. I'm coming back not just to stop you from getting to something racist. Inevitably. <laughs> Do not splash. Stop that on improvising. That this isn't going to go well for you. <laughs> Benedict. He complains here that all these sociologists, these early sociologists. This is 1950. Sociology was still pretty rough in 1950. Still pretty damn rough. And he's complaining about the early sociologists, who he says had a desire to become scientific, which led so many of them to shy far away from anything moralistic or theological. 
written circa 1950. Ow. That one hurts. That one hurts pretty bad. <laughs> I can't see that one being real. It's very funny. <laughs> and then he gets on. So, and it, it, basically, he has a bunch of quotes he's taken out of, not uh, of these textbooks he's talking about, but he's taken out of books that are criticizing textbooks he dislikes. Which And this one, I think, is by a guy named Sutherland. I don't remember off the top of my head, and I'm not going to bother to go check. But one of the paragraphs that is complaining about the books used in sociology courses, I'll just read a part of this quote, which is, quote, The older evolutionary view of the 19th century anthropologists, which regarded primitive religions as stages toward the development of our own higher forms of monotheism and ethics, in a sense, did more to support an interest in and respect for contemporary religions than does a partial application of the modern form of anthropological approach which regards primitive societies as contemporary rather than vestigial, and current primitive forms of religion as functionally analogous to current forms of great religions. So, the implication to take from the way he's presenting this and the way that that's written is that Buckley thinks that what they call primitive religions here um, are on their way to becoming great like Christianity by becoming monotheistic? Yeah. <laughs> I think I, that's that. That's, I mean, it's, well, again. It's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, it certainly, it certainly is the... Uh, it, it's quite a polytheistic approach to, uh, to, to religion. It's quite funny. It, like, isn't bring, it bring, weird bring, that yeah, way? Yeah, yeah. Or unless you consider that what they probably really mean is eventually we'll get them all to convert to Christianity. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> eventually they'll realize what the correct monotheistic is. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably closer to what they actually think. But anyways, uh, Appendix A, kind of fucking boring. Appendix B, not going to deal with it all, because it's just, it, it's just letters it's they really got. It's really boring letters. It's a bunch of letters they got for the Yale Daily News relating to that Professor Kennedy, who he talked about uh, in, I don't remember which chapter at this point, but he called, you know, he's an atheist, and he made jokes about religion. How evil is this guy? And it's just people either supporting or being against him. And I, I don't care. I don't care. And then it ends, I think, with an uh, uh, editorial that he wrote about this whole situation. Um, and he's even wishy-washy in that, in a way that I think he should be making fun of himself. For. Oh, he should. Yeah, he loves to. Oh, he loves to call people wishy-washy and unserious thinkers. So yeah. It's it's just bullshit. He should be, he should be criticizing himself for that bullshit editorial he wrote. Next, Appendix C: Philosophy and Religion. This one eh. is again incredibly boring, and I don't give a shit. I just, I just yep. God, Skip it's it. just so Appendix fucking boring. D. Religion and psychology. Appendix D: Religion and Psychology. And Benedict, this is where we finally get to. I don't care. It's so fucking boring. God damn it. <laughs> Appendix E was exciting for me for a second because I thought it said Cunnilingus at Yale and it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was sad. God um, damn it, Benedict! I had the same joke. <laughs> I had the same joke. Actually, I had that it looked like someone coughed while writing Cunningham. Um, but yeah, the number, Appendix E is Cunningham on religion at Yale, and I think that guy came up in one of our earlier chapters. He's the guy he was relying on a lot for a lot of the criticism that he was uh, reflecting, and uh, you know, I, I I don't give a shit. These are just you know, Christian fascists who want a Christian fascist world. But Benedict, Appendix F, this, this is where the juice is. This is Buckley's undelivered address prepared by him for Yale Alumni Day on February 1950. This is what we got to hear him complain about incessantly 
throughout this chapter. The fact that he wasn't able to deliver his dress, and they wanted him to change it and not to criticize, and then they said no, and that's because they're dicks, not him. They're dicks. Yeah. That's a- so I am going to read this undelivered address, and I'm not going to do the Buckley voice. I promise <laughs> you I'm not going to do the Buckley voice, but we're going to get through as much as we can tolerate, I guess. There's, a, there's a very subtle tonal shift that I want people mm. to see if they notice, mm. and it's yeah, about we'll a see. page in. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe a little more. <clears throat> it is a great honor for me to address you on this occasion. I consider it a special privilege in view of the fact that no topic for my talk was stipulated by Woodbridge Hall, and hence I was quick to assume that so long as I am presentable, I am acceptable. Therefore, I plan to use good grammar, not to split an infinitive and not to end a sentence in a preposition, and I plan to unburden myself of one of the problems that is uppermost in mind, as it must be in yours. And as it must be in the minds of all those men and women who contemplate the dilemma of mid-20th century liberal American education. Pause. I went through this to try and find a grammatical mistake. And to, to was be, it perfect? To be fair to was him, it he did not make a grammatical mistake. Oh, what a dick. That's yeah. the worst. That's the, it would have been so much better if he did immediately after saying that I, yeah. end a sentence in a, propos- in a preposition. That, well, he should have done that right did. away. That's what, Char- Charles Char- Char- did some fun did. stuff around ending, uh, ending sentences and propositions. Uh, also, also in propositions. <laughs> yeah, in propositions. <laughs> Churchill ended a lot of sentences I'm in sure propositions. Yeah. It continues, quote, I say I plan to unburden my mind because I hope for guidance and because I defer to the seasoned and inquisitive and concerned alumnus to help to solve this problem and to point out the way for Yale University. Yale was founded to educate young ministers for the Congregational Church. We read with interest and even with amusement of the rigors of college life during the 18th century, when the bright and heartening rays of the Enlightenment began to illumine... Yeah, see, there's maybe spelling mistakes. Illuminate? Illumine. I don't know. Illumine men's minds. And when the great optimism that accompanied the Age of Reason made its way felt in every corner of the civilized world. These were the days when students were required to converse in Latin, when public whipping was the obvious disciplinary recourse, and when the curriculum was narrowly prescribed, when the sense of direction of the faculty and the fellows was forcibly imposed upon the young mind, when the college had a very explicit mission, narrow though the mission was. And the 19th century served as the relaxing transition toward today, when the university seemed to have no mission. Only a few years ago, the administration of Yale expanded its required courses for Yale College, reasoning that an educated man must know something about social science, must have grappled with exercises in formal thought, must be aware of the texture of a foreign language, must engage in some concern for natural science. Some deemed this policy reactionary, and it is indeed in a large sense out of tune with the Yale of 1950, because Yale imposes little directed discipline. Because Yale's mission is not articulate, except insofar as an agglomeration of words about enlightened thought and action, freedom and democracy, serve to define the mission of Yale. No, this is the university of free and untrammeled inquiry. I hope you can hear Mm. the scare quotes there. This is the university where extremes of thought are presented. 
This is the university which harbors professors who decry God and nature, you, capitalism Kevin. and socialism, puritanism and moral laxity. You, you, this is the university which serves as the headquarters of a magazine devoted exclusively to metaphysics and another concerned entirely with an analysis of French existentialism. You've, you've captured, this is you've the university the which reifies and projects line to line to white German words. And what was that? Better you've, you've captured the very subtle tonal shift. <laughs> Um, this is the university that reifies and projects all thoughts arming them for the battle in the arena of public and conflicting opinion and may the best thought the best idea the best concept win and let the graduate decide for himself which cause to espouse yale has presented every side with equal vigor and this is the great puzzle for me. It is, I am certain, consciously or unconsciously, the great puzzle for my classmates. And I hope that the implications of this extraordinary policy have puzzled you. Because the problem is a real one, and somebody must resolve it. This is what I want to know. Does not this policy of educational laissez-faire imply that the standards and convictions of the present and fellows of the Yale Corporation are no better for Yale than those of any faculty member who devotes his energy and his time to proselytizing conflicting views? Does this mean that it is of no importance that President Seymour is a practicing Christian and Professor Smith is a professional anti-Christian because President Seymour's opinion on the subject is no more valid than Professor Smith's? Does this mean that although the members of the Corporation of Yale believe that modified free enterprise is the best course for Americans, their opinions on this is of no more value than that of Professor Jones, who urges modified socialism upon his students? Are we not led to the inescapable conclusion that the only function of the administration is, to, in fact, to administer, to raise money, to elect presidents, to confirm appointments, but to be ever so careful to refrain from letting personal convictions affect their educational policies? Does this mean, in effect, that the president and fellows of Yale, while of course reserving to themselves the right to cast personal value judgments on the issues of today, may not impose their guidance on the students of a university over which they normally preside? Nominally preside, sorry. Doesn't this indicate that the term educational leader is in fact a gross misnomer? a hazy and farcical semantic device applied to a body of men whose only apparent prerogative is to set up a curriculum and to maintain within scathing. the university a certain amount of working harmony. Benedict, I can't imagine why they didn't want him reading this speech. At the World War II <laughs> Memorial Service. I, I, I can't imagine. Lest we forget that this was, th who, this was at the, the people... Veterans Memorial Service. <laughs> Why the people who he's accusing here of basically being lazy, of not caring, of letting, pe letting people get away with social... I can't imagine why this would not be thought to them uh, to be an appropriate uh, speech to be delivered. You know what's funny, though, about this to me is um, UC Berkeley would absolutely allow you to deliver oh, a yeah, speech. Oh, yeah, for sure. Would absolutely allow you to deliver a speech where you were uh, attacking the administration directly as much as possible. You would 100% be allowed to give this speech there. But continues. We're, we're only a page and a half away from the end. Thank God. But the case is overstated, you will say. After all, didn't President Seymour last spring state that he would not knowingly appoint a communist to the faculty? 
Most certainly he did. It is interesting, too, that his assertion was considered audacious. But against what did the president rule? Against an extreme extreme. He might have equal daring have ruled against student polygamy. What? Sure. I love that. <laughs> student polygamy. God, he would have had a fucking ulcer if he set foot at Arizona State University. <laughs> um, what steps is the administration allowed to take to show up socialism? The blood brother of Marxism. <laughs> you know what? That's a great term. I'm, I'm going to start using that. The blood brother of blood Marxism. Blood brother of Marxism. That's not a bad one. I wish we heard that more from some of the writers we read. What's the, and you know what I'm realizing? This. Fuck the book we just read. This is what Buckley is actually talented at. This right here. Because this is, this is not badly written. This has the invective that he's trying to get out of. Oh, yeah, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. I think somewhere along the way he realized so, me a, trying a to do that supposedly fire, deep researched and, and you know, enter, not, not entertaining, but informative stuff, that doesn't fucking work. Me insulting everyone, that fucking works. And he, he figured out, he got his stride somewhere along the way. What yeah. steps are taken to rule out polygamy as a moral rather than a merely sociological evil? Certainly these questions are rhetorical, because so long as Yale professes this uncurbed, all-encompassing, fanatical allegiance to laissez-faire education, she will lead her students nowhere. She leads them only to confusion. She prolongs and prolongs and prolongs, rule of three is not bad, through her young graduates that struggle in the arena of free thought, never contributing to the ascendancy of one of the protagonists, regardless of what he stands for, because to do so would bring from the liberals the cry of educational totalitarianism. And Yale is very, very allergic to criticism from the liberal, who is the absolute dictator in the United States today. <laughs> do you know what, though, actually? This should have been the book. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is it. Yeah, you know it. what? I would have fucking enjoyed this. We would have had plenty to talk about yeah. if he if he'd done this throughout the entire book. Because like we, how long could we spend talking about that line yeah. about the liberal being the absolute dictator in the U in the United States today? Yep. Yeah. We, we we could have looked into that. I could have done some basic fucking research about political alignment in 1950. We could have talked yeah. about how fuck you. you you don't know what a fucking liberal is, Dick. We could have done that, and this this would have been a fantastic book review. It would have been so much better if we had that. I'm, I'm with you. I'm 100% with you. But he continues. We're almost there. The dilemma is frightening. Suppose the administration of Yale were to formulate in unambiguous terms its educational credo. Suppose this credo were to assert that Yale considers active Christianity the first basis of enlightened thought and action. Suppose it reasserted its belief in democracy. And this is where the triumphant music starts to swell at the end. This is, this, this is you know, bum, 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 something like that. We're working on a script. We have a screenplay. We've, we've talked to some producers. It's in the works. Suppose it asserted that it considered communism, socialism, collectivism, government paternalism inimical to the dignity of the individual and to the strength and prosperity of the nation, save where the government and only the government could act in the interests of humanitarianism and national security. Suppose Yale were to go on to say that whereas... That whereas every student must recognize and explore conflicting views, and of course ultimately formulate for himself his own credo, nevertheless, the university would not sustain prominent members of the faculty who sought to violate the explicit purpose of this university by preaching doctrines against which the officials of the university had cast judgment. I, now that I bring it up, 
my idea for a movie made out of this book. I realize that you can't make a good movie with conservative values because no. you would end up putting so in boring. a screed like this in that piece of shit. You would have to have a fucking screed against free thought in your fucking movie. It's insane. Ugh. Two more paragraphs. Quote, There would come a great hue and cry. A hundred organizations would lash out against Yale. They would accuse her of traducing education, of violating freedom. These charges would be loud, pointed, violent, and superficial. Superficial because Yale is a private institution and acknowledges responsibility to her alumni, for her community, and herself. She... (laughs) Because it's a private institution, Benedict. Because it's a private institution... He's actually. Oh, okay. good God! This that is not as triumphant of a line as he thinks it no, is. But it's not bad. <laughs> like it's not. It's not bad. It's. It's. It's a. It would make for a persuasive speech. No, better. It would. Never, if at you, the end if, of an '80s movie yeah. about uh, a bunch of snowboarders or skiers who are going to take back the the mountain from the the rich kids. Is it ever at the end where the rich kids were triumphant and had a speech where, well, you know, this mountain is a private institution and actually we own it, so we're not going to let you have our mountain. We're going to kick you out and demolish your clubhouse to build the new spa. Right? That's never the triumphant fucking line at the end. It's just pathetic, man. It's so pathetic. He continues. She would be best acknowledging this responsibility by following the course which would lead, in her opinion, to a better America and to a better world. Would Yale be toying with means to achieve an end? Certainly not. Her faculty must hold certain opinions. Why not opinions that, in general, tally with those of the trustees of the institution and that hold with the trustees a common goal? And so we saw in 18th century Yale a thesis in education. 250 years later, we see the antithesis. And perhaps, I'm going to redo that because I burped in the middle of it. <laughs> I'm just imagining Buckley burping Dude. in the middle of this. <laughs> you know he did. It's impossible to give a speech this long without burping once. Yep. It's fucking impossible. 250 years later, we see the antithesis. And perhaps the time has come to resolve the two and proceed to the synthesis. Do you the know what modern... that's called? That's a good line. That's a good line. It, but, but do you know what that is? What? Dialectic thinking as proposed by... <laughs> Marxism. A Hegelian Marxism. dialectic. <laughs> uh, we're going to get the Hegelian dialectic in the, Le- in the Levin book, uh, which I think we've talked about before, but it's conspiracy folks fucking love that shit. I, I, oh, I'm so excited. He literally just did a, did a Marxism, though. Thesis, <laughs> antithesis, synthesis. The modern, free, enlightened university with a purpose and with the will, the courage, and the conviction to imbue her students with that same purpose. This is a purpose which you and I, and presumably the officers of Yale, consider magnificent and noble. It is certainly their right to desire and to insist that insofar as it is possible, this purpose be passed on to the succeeding generations, at least to that portion of succeeding generations that is processed by Yale. That was a bad way to end a speech. Yeah processed by Yale is the final yeah, line that's of not your a good speech? final line, dude. Yeah. Come on, my guy. Gotta do better. Bad. <sighs> the, the, those that join us on the great path through Yale. Some bullshit. Do something better. Yeah, do something more interesting. God. 
damn it. But what did we expect other than a letdown to end this fucking book, really? What else could we expect besides that? No, nothing. Benedict! Yep. How you feeling? Um, Apologetic for picking this book, <laughs> I think. Sorry, everyone. That's on me. Kevin, let me you know pick what? the book. I thought it would be good. It was not yeah, good. Yeah, you, you were wrong about that. But also, I mean... You know, in the past, we've done episodes where we go, ah, it's a breakdown of what we talked about last, last book and blah, blah, blah. I don't think we're going to do that no, with this book I, I because agree. there's so little to talk about we haven't talked about already. And I think what we started with and what I will go back to always is how the fuck is this a classic? And I think the answer has to be, like we said before, because they haven't fucking read it. Mm-hmm. They have no goddamn idea. They've never actually or else, cracked the Or cover else on because Buckley thing. wrote it, and that's the only... Sure, sure, that could be it. But again, still, they haven't fucking read it. Because they would know then that none of the ideas within it, other than the fucking Christian nationalism and that bullshit, track with what they claim to believe today. Yeah. The open disregard for, you know, free speech or for educational freedom. They can't pretend to believe that. Yeah. It just doesn't work no. with what they say today. What is their current bugaboo? So it just doesn't make any goddamn sense. Um, also, he's a bad fucking writer, except that last bit, that speech, yeah. where well, he I was he's, just he's, attacking people. He's definitely a, a a better speaker than he is a writer. Sure, sure. But anyways, everyone, that was this chunk of shit. That was, uh, that was it. That was this book. Yeah, and, um, done. And we're also going to end on a low, just like William F. Buckley. (laughs) Bye. But thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, if you just can't get enough of us, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC and become a patron for as little as $2 an episode. For patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, early, early release of our episodes, and more. And as always, we have to give a shout out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Utah Outcasts, Pause. Brentley, David Garrido, Dave Barwick, Charles Trulier, Dodd Snow, Chris Palmer, Bad Bible Stitches, Ellie Bartlett, Lisa, Tarn Somerville Fletcher, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, C. David, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, A.J. Brantley, Taro Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, and Balls Watterson, and George Soros. Thank you all as always for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, remember, it's twerking time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Club Podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.